1: Well, I bet everybody's just on one tick short of being brain dead tonight after the conference. I know the folks from West Houston Bible Church are all about brain dead because they've been working so hard, and I'm just as proud of them as I can be for all the work they've done. Most of you all who came in from out of town don't know that, uh, for example, that screen and that projector weren't there until last Sunday morning and some of this other stuff we didn't have working and so it's just amazing we made it through without uh, any more glitches than we had. So uh, they did a tremendous job, they worked hard and I'm just as proud of them as I can be. They just pulled it off and did a fantastic job. So it was also great to see so many come and hear the reports. uh, There was one guy here from Indiana, I don't think he was a pastor. But he said, you know, I've been wanting to come to these for a long time, but I just didn't know what went on at, a pa- at these pastor's conferences. And uh, I was a little suspicious and hesitant, but I decided this year that I would come. And this was the greatest blessing I've ever had. Next year I'm bringing my wife. <laughs> so it was a great conference. Well Before we get started, well, let's go ahead and have prayer. And then I'm going to do something a little different to start off this evening. So let's pray. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1.9 if necessary. And then I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're just grateful that we had such a tremendous week, such a turnout, such a conference. We thank you for Schaeffer Seminary, the vision that George has had, and others to establish this school to train young men to pass on the heritage, to prepare men who can fill the pulpits to teach our children and our grandchildren and to to uh, to continue to carry the standard of doctrine forward into the 21st century. Now, Father, as we gather together this evening, we pray that we would be able to just relax, focus, that you'd give us the mental energy to carry through for another hour to be refreshed by the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes when we have our prayer list and we have a listing of pastors and churches, that's all they are is names and churches, so we don't get to know some of these folks and uh, there's a couple of pastors who are still here that are not really known by this congregation and we don't have their names on our prayer list but that's going to be corrected and I've asked uh, Pete Daughtry and Clay Ward and Bruce Einspar to come up and why don't you come in that order where did Bruce go? there he is come up in that order and just to uh, introduce themselves and tell a little about about themselves their church uh, how long they've been there what they're doing and uh, that sort of thing so that we can start putting a, a name of the face and understand the, uh, the ministry that God's given them and pray a little more intelligently for them. So, Pete, why don't you start off?
0: Thanks, Robbie. Well, pastor conference, of course, uh, very dear and near to my heart. It was here in Houston, Texas in 1973 that I first came to my first pastor's conference over here at Baraka. And it was that year that the Lord, uh, at that conference, that the Lord uh, revealed to me that I had the gift of past a teacher. So I went back home. My wife didn't come that year, so I went back home and I told my wife. I said, "Hun, I found out what it is I got." <laughs> and she said, "What?" <laughs> and so I told her. And the very next, well, as a matter of fact, that uh, the very next year, I had to go back home to Albany and take a church there. And I've been there since thirty two years this year. And uh so coming back to Houston again, I've only been out here probably uh two other times for pastors conferences. But uh there in Albany, the church got started probably in seventy three and I went in seventy four and took the church. I was the first pastor and the only pastor they've had at this point. And so uh I'm thrilled to see so many pastors now going out. When we first, in Albany, when we first got started back in 74, there were not very many doctrinal pastors teaching. And to see over the years now the churches and the pastors that have started uh, is a very encouraging thing. I think the Lord is uh, dispersing the troops uh, at, at this particular point in our history. And I think that this is going to be a very vital thing for us, although some of us might not be able to quite understand and see the wisdom in it right now, but I'm sure that there will be a tremendous amount of wisdom. The people there in Albany, we have, we put on a conference, by the way, in, in uh, September, Labor Day conference, so all those of you ladies and guys, too, who work behind the scenes here, I can certainly appreciate what goes on. Uh, Clay comes over, Rick Hughes comes over, usually on uh, my Labor Day conferences, and we have have a quiet time there. What we do, of course, is uh, what, uh, I guess, what all doctoral pastors should do, uh, study and teach, and that's, that's what we've been doing there for 32 years. Robbie, I guess I met Robbie 10 years ago, 15 ten, years ago? 10,
1: 15 years ago, yeah. Yeah,
0: we were, uh, uh, I think I came out here with Rick Hughes, and we were over at uh, Braca for uh, New Year's or something like that, and I think it's the first time I ran across uh, Robbie. That's been quite some time ago. But I appreciate being here. Uh, I enjoyed uh, seeing the conference, and I encouraged again with what's going on as far as uh, the pastors who are picking up the baton and, and moving on with it. And so we certainly uh, would appreciate your prayers for us and our work there in uh, in Albany, and uh, we'll be praying for you as well.
2: Okay. And here comes my buddy. Pass the baton. that's right. Well, my name is Clay Ward, and I'm here to say that Dr. Dean's taking a big chance by letting three pastors stand up here <laughs> and, and cut it short. But uh, uh, just a quick little background about myself: I'm from the South. If you hadn't figured that out, and I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus and Robert E. Lee. And, uh, I grew up in Middle Mississippi in a private school there, and grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I had a lot of questions about some things. I was saved at an early age. In my senior year in high school, a big fellow, most of you probably know who he is, named Rick Hughes came to my high school. And I'd had questions about some things like the filling of the Spirit and those type of questions, and I would pose them to my youth leader, you know, and they said, Well, you know, you just got to yield, or, you know, or I'd ask questions like, you tell us they have the faith of David or Moses. I mean, did they pick it up at Walmart, and where did they get the faith that uh, you're telling us to have? And they didn't have a good answer. Well, Rick shows up and puts up what I know you know well, the cross in two circles. So I i got to talk to that man, you know. And I spent about, I don't know, three or four hours in his hotel room that night, and I asked him after he got through, For the first time in my life I understood what the Christian life was about, and I asked him three questions. I said, first of all, how do you know this, second of all, where did you get it, and third, why haven't I heard this before, you know, what's the problem? And he put me on, of course, to uh, R.B. Theme, Colonel, colonel Theme's ministry, and believe it or not, there was a couple there in my hometown that had been studying under the colonel for thirty years, and they became like my spiritual parents. And a year after that, I came out here to Houston because my mom uh, lived out here at the time. And I met a fellow that I wasn't too sure about at the time uh, named Robbie Dean. (laughs) And uh, that was about 12, 13 years ago, I guess now. And uh, I I told him, I said, well, you know, I think I have the curse, I mean, the gift of pastor-teacher, and I was just kind of wondering what I need to do about that. And he gave me some good advice, of course, and then... I played college basketball for a couple years and was a uh, high school basketball coach and a, and a college coach, and then I decided I needed to go to seminary. I spent my seminary time with uh, Tyndale Theological Seminary and uh, received the bulk of my training there, and I'm still finishing up an accredited uh, uh, THM from Louisiana Baptist University. But to make a long story real short, at the Colonel's 50th, I ran into several groups that were tape groups. and. Uh, one approached me, several of them approached me, and the one that followed through with me was a man named Tom Northcott in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And that's where our church is. We have a church called Play Roma Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And he called me back a couple of weeks later. I was actually off at basketball camp, and when I got back, I called him back and came up and kind of talked a little bit, and I told him, well, I still have some training to finish. And I spent uh, actually a year with uh, with Pete in uh, Albany, Georgia, interning there. And so uh, I said, when we get done, you know, this would be a good thing to do. And they wanted to start a church. And he not only got a pastor out of it, but he got a son-in-law out of it as well. <laughs> My wife Amy is with me. And so I don't know which he likes better, but uh, that's how it works. We're in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and we've been there now uh, functioning as a church with myself as the pastor for about four years. And I'm very thankful for the other men, uh, Dr. Dean, Mr. Pete, uh, just everybody had influence in my life and uh, have helped me to be trained to study the Word of God, and that's what we do. And since Mr. Pete made a plug for his conference, I'll make a plug for mine. <laughs> we have an annual 4th of July conference uh, this 4th of July. will be starting, I think, the 4th on Tuesday, so I think it'll start on Sunday morning. So all are welcome uh, anytime you would like to come. So Thank you.
3: talk I'll set it up. I'm supposed to talk he's supposed to get it going here. Yeah. Give you a little bit of an idea of the uh, wonderful group of people called Columbia Bible Church. This is in uh, okay this is Columbia Bible Church in uh, the tri-cities of Washington which is in southeast Washington. I know there's only a couple of uh, adopted Texans here from Washington. They know where we might be talking about. Uh, it's kind of dry where I'm at. Uh, we live in the evergreen state. Well, where we live, is about four inches or five inches of rain a year, so it's not really too green. Um, the uh, group of people here that you see was uh, uh, we tried to get everybody to stay for a photograph. Not everybody stayed, but uh, like I say, I've been there 28 years, and, and uh, they've got to be real kind to let you stay that long. And I appreciate this uh, group of people very much. We have. Uh, I think a very um, good uh, core of teaching. I'm going through right now uh, through the whole Bible. Bob Bolander of uh, Austin Bible Church got me going on going through the whole Bible. I like to do two or three verses a Sunday, and now I'm trying to do seven to 14 chapters a Sunday, and it's killing me, about dying on the whole project. Um, Give a little bit more. This is my wonderful family. Uh, My new son-in-law from two years ago. My the most beautiful daughter in the world, of course. And um, the uh, thrill I've had, uh, my wife is from Brazil, and uh, she kind of dies up there in Washington because she's used to equator temperatures, but uh, we, we live up there in Washington State and have had a wonderful time. I've, my son-in-law just got a job as a Pasco uh, Fire Department paramedic, uh, and we uh, hope that they'll be moving closer to where we are. I had the most wonderful experience having, being a parent. We were told we couldn't have children. And the Lord surprised everybody with uh, Tricia. And uh, as it uh, turned out, this is a, a wonderful experience because how, how, how neat of a young lady to have. That she goes up and takes a game of golf up, and she, she can outdrive all my friends. <laughs> and she got her scholarship and went to the uh, University of Idaho on a scholarship. And now she belongs to a country club, and it's so neat for her to call me up and say, Hey, Dad, you want to go play golf? And, uh, you know, I get in the airplane, fly up to where she lives, she picks me up, she takes me golfing, she pays for my lunch, puts me on the airplane. What a wonderful daughter. (laughs) This is another ministry I have. I'm a chaplain for the Frank County Sheriff Pasco Police Department. I've had a tremendous experience being there, Uh, not only uh, dealing with a lot of officers uh, who have lots of problems, often problems. But also being involved in the uh, enforcement part, uh, this shows me as a pilot. Uh, the Lord really blessed me in a wonderful way. I came there to church uh, when I first got there, and this couple were instructors in airplanes, and they said, took me up in the airplane. And says, would you like to learn how to be a pilot? And I said, you think a monkey wants a banana? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, got to learn how to fly, and then uh, the county picked me up, and we go out and look for marijuana every year, and it's been uh, quite a thrill to be involved in that uh, that type of. Uh, Ministry plus also law enforcement. I was a police officer in the city of Dallas after being um, being a, uh, after graduating from Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. So the training I got from Dallas uh, Police Department has been put into very good use uh, as, uh, as a chaplain up in that uh, area. So anyway, that's uh, about all I want to say. And thank you very much, Robin. And we appreciate your prayers. too.
1: Thanks, Bruce. You know, Bruce uh, was a real help. Some of you seminary guys are... Uh, will be familiar with this. Uh, let me find where I'm going here. There we go. Uh, as a student, Bruce made one of the greatest contributions. I'll get off of that, mic. I'm on my own. Made one of the greatest contributions for scholars and students. He put together a group of students who were working on their THM. Instead of doing a THM thesis, they did a project. And he's been in computers since, I mean, this was like when? 73? 74? 74. 74. And they, uh, back then, nobody ever heard of a PC or Libronics or any of this stuff. And I think they rented time at the uh, Dr. Pepper or Frito plant on their computer, wasn't that it? Dallas Independent School District. Dallas Independent School District computer. See, I don't have all my facts right. But what they did was they went through the thick Brown Driver and Briggs Hebrew uh, lexicon. That's the Hebrew, classic Hebrew dictionary and they categorized every single Scripture reference, and there must have been 50, 75 Scripture references in every column, two columns on every page. And they categorized that whole thing and then generated an index that would print out, Genesis, in listing all the verses in order in the Bible. So if you were a Hebrew student and you were working in Genesis 1-1, you'd turn to Genesis 1-1 and you would uh, work there and you'd see the listing of words that were referenced uh, in B d b what page it was on, what part of the column, and that was a standard reference tool that every one of us bought uh, from that time on i don 't he 's gone out of business with that, probably with Libronics. is that still in print still in print, and it 's just one of the greatest tools that uh, available for for students down in any student of the word. oh Dan sit here with his mouth open. <laughs> Yeah, it was just just a fantastic. I mean, mine was so dog-eared by the time I finished my THM, I had to go buy another one. The thing was falling apart. Okay, well, now we've got a little idea of what goes on around the country. Like Clay said, you know, he couldn't believe it. I'd let anybody come up here. Well, see, you guys had another forty minutes. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> there was a plan here. Hit, no, you didn't. You know, I was just going to let you all run with it. Oh, you got to. Make me think. Okay, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going through our study of Hebrews. And we're going to just open with a little introduction on the structure of the book of Hebrews so far. Remember, I have set forth the thesis that I believe that the book of Hebrews was originally an oral message that was taken and edited and then Uh, may be sent as a letter it has a structure built around five basic points each point has a didactic section a teaching section that relies heavily upon Old Testament imagery and I just love that when Charlie was talking last night at the conference about how important it is to tie these things together as you go through the Old Testament the Old Testament imagery sets the stage for the doctrines that are developed in the New Testament. And John Cross did the same thing in his talk uh, yesterday morning. And I find that to be so helpful. This morning I was teaching Joshua in my class over at the college and was going through that again in, in the conquest, tying that to sanctification. And I've been following that methodology, not just teaching a dry OT survey type course, but using a framework approach embedded within the way I teach each book. And these students have never heard anything like it, but it's showing how the, everything in the Old Testament is designed by God to set the stage so that later revelation is, is made more clear so that when we come to the incarnation and the cross, uh, everything unfolds. Well, the writer of Hebrews, more than just about any author of the New Testament except perhaps Matthew, relies heavily on this Old Testament uh, imagery. So we saw that he began with an introductory prologue in the first four verses of the first chapter which introduces some of the main key ideas focusing on the present ascended Jesus Christ currently in session at the right hand of God the Father uh, at work to prepare the saints of the church age to rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom. Then the first teaching section is found in the rest of verse of chapter one, rather from verse five down through verse fourteen, where there's uh, eight different Old Testament quotations that he uses to weave together uh, these principles, demonstrating that Jesus is a is the Son, that he is in his deity over the angels, but in his humanity through his uh, victorious. Christian or victorious life on the earth in his humanity walking by means of the spirit he's qualified to go to the cross he fulfills his mission and he's elevated over the angels in his humanity the focus here is in his superiority over the angels in his humanity which was something he earned through his through, through his spiritual life and completion of his mission during the first advent then out of that, there is a four-verse challenge uh, or warning section that is developed in 2, 1 through 4, warning these recipients of the danger that is involved in the Christian life if we fall by the wayside and we don't stick with it and continue to press on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, he begins the second point he builds out of the, some of the main ideas he developed in the first chapter and he begins to uh, extrapolate from that the doctrines related to uh, Jesus Christ, high priesthood and his his sanctifying growth or his growth in sanctification during the first advent that in his humanity he had to be matured through sufferings and that this then qualified him to serve as our high priest in three seven to 4.13 he we have the next exhortation and warning section and the main idea there is the idea of a promise remaining to enter into God's rest and we talked about the different meanings of the word rest there that rest can refer to God's sabbatical rest on the seventh day of creation that creation week rest then the word rest is also used in the Old Testament to refer to the uh, Jewish rest, the promised land rest, that they would enter into the promised land and there experience the rest of God. But that rest is a picture or a foreshadowing of the future rest that comes in the millennial kingdom. And so there is a challenge that as believers we aren't to fail like the Jews going through the wilderness who weren't allowed to enter into the rest, but we are to press on to spiritual maturity so that we are qualified to enter into that kingdom rest in the millennial kingdom. This goes from three seven to 4.13 and then in chapter 4 verse 14 we enter the next didactic section which is shorter than the previous one 414 to 511 which is going back to it goes back to the doctrine of the high priesthood of christ that's developed in 417 this section also goes back to the sanctification maturation process of the lord jesus christ in chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 and it weaves these together in a very short section goes from 414 to uh, to 511, and it ends at 5, I mean, excuse me, that should be 414 to 510. It breaks at 510, ending up with pointing out that Jesus Christ has been uh, identified, named as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the whole priest, present priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is built off of this very short image that you have back in the Old Testament related to this somewhat enigmatic uh, royal priest, this Gentile priest, Melchizedek. Not much is said about him, but that's God's plan. God could have said a whole lot more about Melchizedek. But he leaves out all this information, and he structures that narrative in Genesis chapter, uh uh, what is that? 14, 15, just so we can under, he can then use that image of that historical personage to develop our understanding of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ during the current age. So that's from 4.14 to 5.10. The reason I, I keep messing up on this is because I'm using this New King James and it breaks the paragraph at the wrong place. It breaks it between 11 and 12. And the break comes between ten and eleven in the Greek. Ten, the sentence ends with the end of verse ten in the Greek. And then, starting in five ten, excuse me, five eleven. Starting five eleven, you have the beginning of the next warning section from five eleven down through the end of chapter six. This is a crucial warning section. Of course, we get into that. We'll get into that fun passage in six one through eight that talks about. Those who have, it's impossible to renew those who were once enlightened and have tasted the uh, heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people use that verse to say you can lose your salvation. So we'll get into that, but not tonight. So these are the first three points that this writer is developing in the structure of his message. And there's two more major sections coming, and the last one ends with two warning or two exhortation sections. So that's where we are. We're just starting this third warning section, this third exhortation se- section in chapter 5, verse 11. The previous section ends with this focus on Melchizedek. In 5.6 five, and 5.10, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is identified by God as high priest. The word there translated called by God is the Greek word pros agoruo agoruo, which means to refer to someone by name or some other term it means to call to name to designate it means to name or promote someone they're identified in the sense of a glorified position so this is an identification of Jesus Christ in his glorified position at the right hand of God the Father as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek the Old Testament priesthood was limited. That's going to be the main driving argument in the next section beginning in one. He just builds to this point, developing his, his point from, from 4.14 to, to uh, 5.10, and then he just stops and has to go back and almost ream out his readers because they're not ready to listen to the advanced doctrine based on the Old Testament understanding of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And there are serious problems with his readers, which is what we'll get into uh, tonight. This is These are the verses from 11 down to 14 that describe the sluggish, backslider believer. Pros Agareo, Jesus Christ is promoted or identified as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 5.11 begins a new sentence. In English translations, it doesn't look that way, but that's the way it is in the Greek. Of whom, and the whom refers to Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, is how it's translated in the New King James, and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The first word in the Greek is a preposition, peri, with, used with a genitive, and it means on account of, with reference to something, or concerning something. We could translate it about something or about a topic. So I prefer that particular translation. Then that's followed by the relative uh, masculine singular pronoun uh, for whom. So it's the beginning of the of the sentence is about whom. So it's subject shifts. About whom we have much to say but. That's how it's going to go about whom that is about Melchizedek we have much to say and this phrase we have much to say is a very difficult Greek construction literally it would be translated about whom the message with reference to us is great or much that's how it would be literally translated so you see it has a little different sense than what it reads in the English that uh, we have much to say. It is about whom the message, the emphasis is on this word, the message, because that's the noun that's in the nominative case. Nominative case is your subject case, so that's the topic of the sentence. That's what this sentence is all about, is the message that is built off of Melchizedek, the doctrine that is built off of Melchizedek, uh, about whom the message with reference to us. So this message about Melchizedek has reference to us. It's a dative, uh, third-person plural pronoun, which means it's in reference to us, and the message about Melchizedek has direct application to every believer. And so he's telling this congregation that about Melchizedek, the message with reference to us is much. It's the Greek word polis, and it means much or many. There's a tremendous amount of... Of important doctrine that is based off of this, and then he immediately goes on to say it's hard to explain. And he uses the word deus hermeneutas, and that core word there, hermeneutas, is where we get our, uh, related to our Greek, our uh, English word hermeneutics, which has to do with interpretation and explanation. So this word means with the prefix, uh, D-U-S indicates something that's hard or difficult to explain. Now it's not difficult or hard to explain because the topic's difficult to explain. Because with the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, any believer who is walking by by the Spirit and advancing in their understanding of doctrine is going to be able to understand it. All doctrine is available to every believer. That's God's grace package. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand these things. The reason that this is difficult for the writer to explain, it's hard for him to explain to them, is given in the next clause. It's not because the topic so difficult, it's because the sheep he's talking to have become dull of hearing. They've become sluggish, lazy, backslidden sheep, and it's their spiritual condition that makes it difficult for him to Uh, explain this doctrine. So he has to stop a minute and reprimand them because they have become lazy in their spiritual growth. That next word and that next clause sets it up. It's the Greek word epi which means since or because or for this reason. It's hard to explain for this reason. It's hard to explain because of the fact that you have become dull of hearing. Now, the key word there is the, is the verb become. They have become something. It's a perfect active indicative. Now, I don't think it's always necessary to refer to the Greek, but it's important when it brings out the sense and the meaning of the passage. It forces us to slow down a little bit and think about just what the writer is saying. And when you look at this verb, And you look at the parsing, it's a perfect indicative. Now, perfect tense emphasizes an action that's completed. It's emphasizing the present state that's the result of an already completed action. That means they're not in the process of becoming dull of hearing. They've been dull of hearing and they're still dull of hearing. They have completed the process of becoming dullards and they're still dullards. They're sluggish and lazy in their spiritual understanding. They, uh, ha, The verb here, genemi, means to become something you were not before. So this indicates that previously they had grown to a higher or more advanced level of, of, of spiritual maturity and they had been able to understand these things. But because of sin in their life, because of a variety of factors, because they were beginning to be tempted to just throw out their Christianity and go back into Judaism uh, these factors were dulling their spiritual senses and they were reversing their spiritual growth so they have gone through a growth process up and now they're regressing to spiritual infancy so they have become something that they were not before so it's important to look at just different elements of the Greek syntax to emphasize this Now they've become dull. What does that word mean? That's the Greek word nothros. Nothros. It means lazy, sluggish, dull, hard of hearing. So they're sluggish backsliders. They're lazy Christians. They've become lazy in their spiritual life. They just want to, they reached a point where they were comfortable and then they began to slide backwards. And when they began to slide backwards, they're uh, spiritual sensitivity was dull and all of a sudden they began to recognize that they were facing problems related to their stance for Christ as the Messiah of the Old Testament and they began to realize they were coming into persecution and testing various other things and now they were tempted to go back under the law to go back into the uh, Judaistic practices that were dominant in the first century. And so the writer describes them as being uh, lazy, dull, hard of hearing. The idea of being lazy means that you're averse to activity or exertion. Now, do we know any Christians that are adverse to spiritual activity or exertion? You know, that's the old nod to God crowd. They just show up on Sunday morning or they show up on Easter or they show up at Christmas. They, they, they just don't have a sense that in their Christian life, That it is a priority to know the Word of God such that it completely overhauls their thinking. It's not just a matter of thinking biblical thoughts. You know, to make it somewhat simple, it's not just a matter when you become a Christian of realizing that you have certain thoughts in your mental attitude life they certain thoughts that are wrong jealousy, envy, bitterness, anger, resentment, any of these things. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, I'm not going to have those mental attitude sins. Because you can take those mental attitude sins out of the out of the house of human viewpoint, and you can fill that human viewpoint house up with human good, but it's still a human viewpoint house, the house being the structure of your thinking. It's still a human viewpoint house with human good morality in it and it's not doing you a bit of good as a believer because you're just as pagan as when you, before you were saved. Just now you're a moral pagan. Just now you're a self-righteous pagan. But you're still a pagan. You're not thinking biblically. When I went through Dallas Seminary, there was a professor of homiletics there. George had him and, and uh, Bruce had him named Haddon Robinson. Now, he, Haddon Robinson used to poke fun at the guys that wanted to do any kind of exegesis in the pulpit. And uh, one of our other board members for Chafer Seminaries, Todd Kennedy, who's pastor of Spokane Bible Church. Todd told me he, was, he got an F on a sermon because he used an overhead projector uh, from Haddon Robinson. That was, that's the, their mentality of teaching. Now, but Haddon Robinson had a few things to say every now and then. And one thing that stuck with me, he said, man, it's hard enough to think. But it's really hard to think about how you think. Now, think about that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard enough to think. I mean, most people, mo- that's the reason most people don't like to go to churches. They say, oh, you guys have a cerebral ministry. What that means is that we're te- teaching people to think biblically. They just don't want to come right out and say that. A cerebral ministry is opposed to a heartfelt ministry. We're not emotional. We're teaching people to think biblically. But it's not just a matter of having the right thoughts. It's a matter of the structure of the thinking. The fancy word for that is epistemology. Charlie used that word a few times the last two or three nights where he talked about not being an an epistemological pagan. And that's what what we're getting at here, is when you still think like an unbeliever, you're an epistemological pagan. You may have moral thoughts, you may have establishment principles in your thinking, but the structure of your thinking is still built upon autonomous reason, or autonomous uh, experience, or dare I say it, mysticism, and subjective intuitiveness. And that's what happens. You have to restructure your thinking according to uh, biblical uh, revelation. And so most people don't want to do that because they're lazy. They don't want to restructure the priorities in their life, so they're Bible class three or four times a week and listening to tapes the rest of the time. I mean, when I get up in the morning, I've got all kinds of stuff on my iPod. My friend Tommy Ice just loves to go out and download stuff. Whenever we get together, he just fills my iPod up with all all kinds of stuff. I, it would be the rest of my life before I could listen to all this stuff. But I get up, and whenever I'm doing anything, I just, like this morning, I was getting ready to go, and I just uh, turned on the iPod and put it on the external speakers, and I was listening to a series of lectures on the history of Calvinism. But just constantly being hit with stuff that reminds you bring stuff back into your consciousness, listening to doctrine, doing that, where it's a part of your life, and one of these days, in your spiritual growth, you realize that Christianity isn't just something you do, along with going shopping, and going to your job, and going through um, ongoing, continuing education with your career, but that learning the Word of God, and learning to think biblically, becomes your life. It is what drives everything else in your life is at the center of your life, and that's the only way we can have real stability and real happiness in life so these these believers have become dull, they become lazy, they become sluggish and slow to respond. They're just not response responsive at all, and they are they are dull of hearing, of hearing. The Word of God. And when the Bible talks about hearing the Word of God, it's not just talking about sitting in class or listening to a tape and getting your auditory nerves vibrated and filling up your notebook with notes. It's talking about application. That's the whole message in the first point in James' three-point sermon is don't just be hearers of the Word, but be appliers of the Word. Take what you learn And apply it to the way you think, and the way you uh, interact with people, and the way you uh, conduct your life. But it starts with thinking. All application starts with thinking. It doesn't start with external, external behavior. So in Hebrews five eleven, we read about Melchizedek. We the message is great. The message to us is great. And hard to explain because you've become lazy in listening to doctrine. And this is something that we find reinforced even in the Old Testament. You have several passages that, that describe this kind of laziness where the prophets challenge the uh, Israelites. For example, in Ezekiel 12.2, Ezekiel challenges the Israelites. This is right before they go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. He says... Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. When a believer reverses course in his Christian growth then what happens is his seeing, his spiritual seeing, his spiritual hearing, his spiritual perception uh, starts to become uh, dull and he is not able to perceive things from that divine viewpoint framework. So he's operating on a human viewpoint framework and as a result of that he starts to make bad decisions. He's operating on autonomous reason, so he's making bad decisions from bad reasoning. He's operating on autonomous empiricism, so he's making bad decisions from bad uh, interpretation of experience or if he's in our modern culture he's operating on some kind of intuitive mysticism and all mysticism is subjective and the problem with mysticism is there's no there's no guard there's no way to there's no form of correction in mysticism because mysticism ends the completely ends all discussion or evaluation why did you do that because God told me to oh end of discussion that's why it's so difficult to talk to somebody who's, who's, a, who's a mystic who's in the Pentecostal movement or is a New Age unbeliever. You say, well, how do you know that's true? Because it's, it's true to me. I just know it is. Well, how can you talk about that? Well, you can't. You can't bring reason to bear on any kind of mystical decision-making. And therefore, mysticism always goes hand-in-hand hand with irrationalism. It is anti-rationalism. And mysticism has never been a good term to use to describe anything in the Christian life. In an older generation, when mysticism was virtually dead in the early part of the 20th century, there were Christians who used the term mysticism to describe the mysterious relationship of the Holy Spirit to the individual believer because it was difficult to articulate it. And so they moved from that use of the word mysterious to mysticism. But it's a poor use of the word uh, mysticism. Zechariah 7.11 is another indication of a challenge from the prophets to the hardened spiritual hearts of the uh, Jews. They refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. It's not that they stuck their fingers in their ear, but they stopped them because of their negative volition, because of their rejection of the truth. Now, what causes a believer to become lazy, sluggish, dull, and hard of hearing? So we've got these. This is the first time I really had a chance to work with these screens. I have a nice bright yellow on my computer, and these are still coming across white. So I've got to figure out how to deal with the colors that I work with. Spend all your time colorizing your charts, and it doesn't show up. So what good is that? Uh, First way, a first thing that causes a believer to become lazy, sluggish, dull or hard of hearing is that the study and application of the word of God is no longer important. The study and application, not just study, but the study and application, you can't separate the two in true biblical study. The study and application of the word of God is no longer a priority. And this doesn't happen overnight with most people. It happens gradually. All of a sudden, what happens is there's this thing that comes up. There's that business pressure. There's these events that my kids need to be in. They've got to get to soccer today. They've got to get to ballet tomorrow. They've got to go to their piano lesson. And all of a sudden, the parents quit being parents, and the scheduling of the priority of the spiritual life of the family starts to erode because of uh, dictates from the children. One of the things I always that grates on me as a pastor is when I hear anybody saying, well, you know, I've, cho- I've decided to go to this church because that's where my kids want to go. Or I want to go to this church because they have this for my kids. Okay, so who runs the insane asylum at your address? The guards are the inmates. Obviously, it's the inmates. You let your kids make the most important decision affecting the family. And that is where you're going to go and get the Word of God. No, parents say, kids, we're going to this church. There may not be any other kids there. There's no youth group. It doesn't matter. What we get at that church is the Word of God taught by a trained pastor, and that's what matters, and that's how you make the decision. second thing that causes a believer to become uh, lazy or sluggish is that the details of life distract them from their priorities. All the various details of life, whatever it may be, friends, family, and that we always have
2: distractions.
1: You know, sometimes people get the idea that, oh, well, you know, you just have so many distractions. Well, tell one of one of us that doesn't. Point out one person that doesn't have distractions. That's part of those tests that pop up that James talks about in James uh, 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy when you encounter, fall into, by happenstance, various trials, multi uh... faceted trials we don't see these things coming every test is a distraction didn't you know that i mean you're going along and all of a sudden your parents get a little older and they look in the mirror and they don't know who they are they look at you and they don't know who you are at the same time you're having kids that are going through college and they're flunking out or they're uh... getting involved in drugs next thing you know on the one hand you've got a parent doing one thing and you've got kids doing another and you've got to be in four different places at one time Those are distractions are tests. You can't get rid of those things. That's what life is. And the issue is how are we going to deal with the distractions without letting them destroy our priorities on the spiritual life. Also, third, sin and or human good becomes a distraction which begins to callous the soul to the truth. We get involved in sin. It can be very subtle. It can be overt sin. Uh, Usually by the time a Christian really slips into overt carnality, they've been going there mentally for some time. They've just been spending more and more time out of fellowship and walking by the flesh. And then they're also producing human good at the same time. The result of this point, number four, is that a person uh, gets to the point where they become divided you can tell I was tired when I wrote that. Becomes to become. See, that's a typo. The result of this is that a person uh, gets to the point where they're divided between two views. Human viewpoint on the one hand, divine viewpoint on the other. This is the, uh, this is the person described in James chapter 1 as the two-souled or double-minded man. He, he, he wants to live his life according to two different systems of values. But you can't merge them you've either got paganism and pagan values on the one hand no matter how good or establishment may be there's still paganism on the other hand you have the Bible and you can't walk with one foot on each side you have to make a decision at some point in your Christian life are you going to pursue consistent biblical thinking in your life or are you going to pursue living within your comfort zone around people you like and uh, politicians you like and other and, and social things that you like because that's where you're whether you're comfortable. The more you become biblical in your thinking and your lifestyle, the more you're going to be at odds with the world around you. And a lot of people just don't like that. They don't because it separates starts to separate them from their friends and their family that they've known for a long time and all of a sudden they feel like they're they're out there isolated. So it's what Elijah's challenging the people with in 1st Kings chapter 18 uh, verse 21 Elijah came to the people and said how long will you falter between two opinions the paganism of Baalism or worshipping Yahweh how long will you falter between two opinions and that's a problem most Christians never reach the point where they fully make a decision and decide to stick with it so what are the dynamics of a backsliding believer what are the dynamics of a backsliding believer? Well, I've got nine here. First of all, it always begins with a decision to stop walking by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 Walk by means of the Holy Spirit and you cannot, it's impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. me in the Greek, the double negative plus the subjunctive verb, is the strongest negation in the, in the Greek. So there's always a decision to stop walking by the Holy Spirit. And so the default position for everybody is the flesh. You don't have to decide, I'm going to sin. You just have to stop walking by the Spirit, and you'll automatically just default to walking by the flesh. Then if you stay there and you have continued carnality, continued walking by the flesh, it leads to an increased and heightened arrogance you become more and more oriented to yourself, your own agenda, your own desires rather than God's desires, rather than God's, your word rather than God's words. And so then we begin to refine those arrogant skills that we've talked about. Uh, Self-absorption, where we just become more and more concerned with our problems and our hurts and our emotions and how we feel. And, you know, you hear women in marriage class say, well, he just doesn't pay attention to how I feel. And, uh, uh, the man comes in and he expresses it the same way. Well, i got this and I've got that. and Everybody's focusing on their own world, their own life, their own feelings, their own agendas, and they're not coming out of themselves. It's just arrogance, arrogance. Arrogance is tenacious, folks, if you don't realize that. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. The more you're absorbed with your own problems, your own heartaches, your own issues, the more you begin to indulge yourself in that. I remember when I was a kid and I'd get sick and my mother would say, Well, just don't indulge yourself in that. Get up, get dressed, and go to school. Oh my throat hurts. Get dressed and go to school. You know, don't give in to it. And that's what happens. The more you become self absorbed, the more you give in to it. You just indulge your, your arrogance. And that leads eventually to a distortion of reality, self deception. And then as you go through self deception, that leads to fact you begin to justify that self-deception you build rationalizations that make a lot of sense to us and we justify our carnality and we justify our behavior down deep we know this is wrong this isn't what the bible says but but it's comfortable to us so we build these rationalizations to keep us in our comfort zone and after all god understands we're, we're sinners you know he's, He he understands that he And then, of course, what we've done is we've replaced God with ourselves, so that leads to self deification. This is just an ongoing cycle that keeps going and going and going until ultimately we end up in self destruction. In the midst of this, there's vacillation in decision making. This is what I referenced a minute ago in James, I think it's James one five or one six, the disuchos believer, the two souled believer. He's just he's he's waffling between two different views. Fifth point, what happens then is we start seeking happiness in the details of life. God is no longer the source of our happiness and joy. We're going to find peace and happiness in success or in money or in friendship or marriage or sex or drugs or alcohol or partying or good time or good feelings or indulging our emotions or whatever it is, and we just get on a detail-of-life roller coaster, and this is the leeks and garlic syndrome of the Jews coming out of Egypt. As soon as they started hitting hard times, they rejected doctrine. They said, I don't want God's wonderful provision of manna. Now, manna was the supernatural food, the angelic bread, so to speak, that God provided for the Jews to give them complete sustenance as they were going through the, the wilderness every morning. There it was, manna, from the Hebrew word men, meaning what? They looked at it and they went, what it is, Tasted like Shipley Donuts, I'm convinced. Hot Shipley Donuts every morning. What a deal. But They got tired of it after a while. You'd get tired of anything, It was the same thing morning after morning after morning. But they got tired of God's grace, so they said, we want to go back and get the leeks and garlics of Egypt. We want to go get Mexican food. You know, some with a little spice in it. You know, we're tired of this. So they wanted to go back and get some of that good Mexican food or Cajun food they had over in Egypt. This leads to soul poverty. That's exactly what Psalm 106 is talking about, is the context of the fact that, that they, the wilderness generation and their carnality and their rebelliousness kept wanting these different things for uh, their, their life. And Psalm 106:15 is one of my favorite verses. God gave them their requests, and he sent leanness to their soul." Now that's a powerful verse they got what they wanted what they thought would make them happy and it didn't and he sent leanness to their soul they were just they were empty it's soul poverty it reinforces this unhappiness but then they have to go back on that frantic search for happiness and find something else and so the more arrogant you are the more carnal you are the more you just deteriorate into this downward spiral along with this what happens is the previously learned doctrine Begins to be ignored, lost, or forgotten. You can't remember that promise. Where is it? Somewhere in the Old Testament, something to do with uh, something to do with God. Yeah, I'm supposed to trust Him. Yeah. Oh, well. You know, you forget the doctrine that you learned. It's no longer there. And over and over and over again, you just build calluses in your soul to the Holy Spirit, who's trying to bring the doctrine up. For remembrance, and so gradually doctrine begins to be ignored, lost, or forgotten, and you begin to you you become an, an adolescent believer, but now you're acting like a baby. You know, remember when you were, when you were an adolescent maybe, and you threw a temper tantrum, and your mama said, "Quit acting like a baby." She didn't mean you were an infant chronologically. She meant you were, you should have been acting more mature, but you were still acting like a baby. It was an insult of course the only word we have in English for baby we have baby and infant and maybe uh, one other word but that's, that's pretty much it in Greek there were four or five other words which we'll get into as we go through this passage as we forget doctrine it creates a vacuum in the soul that just sucks in paganism it sucks in more and more human viewpoint we start reading psychology we, we start you know I, I'm just not happy I need, I need some help let, let me turn on Dr. Phil and so we watch Dr. Phil, or, or, or you go down to the, uh, to the bookstore and you get, I'm okay, you're okay, or you decide you're going to really keep that Christian facade going so you get the Christian book, go to the Christian bookstore, and you get the Christian version of, I'm okay, you're okay. You go read Robert Shuler who says, Your problem isn't sin, it's self esteem. Jesus didn't die for sin. That's an antiquated concept. You just need to have your self esteem pumped up. And Jesus died to give you self esteem. Y'all knew that, didn't you? Yeah, that's your problem. You just don't have good self-esteem. Sin's not a problem. So vacuum in the soul starts sucking in surrounding paganism. And as paganism dominates your soul, you enter into cosmic or pagan degeneracy. See, the, the concept in the Bible of cosmos or worldliness is really the idea of pagan culture. Whatever the values are, whatever the the view of reality, the metaphysics. That's what metaphysics means is your ultimate view of reality. Whatever the ultimate view of reality of your surrounding culture is, whether it's a polytheistic culture, a Greek culture, Egyptian culture, Indian Hindu culture, um, Western American secular pragmatic culture, that's, that's the cosmic thinking. It has a metaphysic. It has a way of knowing and epistemology. It has an ethic system. It has an aesthetic system. That's all the philosophy of the world. That's all in cosmic thinking so we enter into pagan degeneracy now pagan degeneracy or cosmic degeneracy manifests itself two ways and of course this relates to the trends of our sin nature on the one hand it's related to immoral degeneracy now this is a term everybody can understand we all know immoral degenerates if you don't after class we can go down to Montrose and I can show a lot show you a lot of them (laughs) Immoral degeneracy, they're involved in all kinds of things. It can be mental attitude immoral degeneracy, or it can be sexual immoral degeneracy, or it can be ethical immoral degeneracy. Nobody has a problem with immoral degeneracy. It's a rejection of absolutes. So it rejects the absolutes of reason and... Uh, empiricism and it leads to irrationalism and mysticism. It's interesting how there's a rise of immoral degeneracy and at the same time a rejection of any kind of absolute truth and you get a rise of, of irrationalism and mysticism that uh, dominates the culture at large and the church, it sneaks into the church in all kinds of different ways this leads to licentiousness it's a rejection of values and I was thinking today what's a good group in the Bible that would illustrate this a good biblical group that, that just pictures uh, licentiousness and immoral degeneracy you've got to go to the Old Testament any of the groups that, Well, we'll get there in a minute I, I don't have the group up there yet sorry I put it in the wrong place in the slide let's flip over you have immoral degeneracy and on the other side you have moral degeneracy Now, most people don't put those words together, moral degeneracy. How can you be a moral degenerate? See, we think of a degenerate as some kind of homosexual perverted deviant. But there's also moral degenerates. Moral degenerates operate on autonomous reason and empiricism. They have a lot of order in their structure in their lives. And they have everything, and and they can be very, very moral. They tend towards, or trend towards asceticism, and self-righteousness. Now, who are the two groups in the Scriptures that manifest these two characteristics? The immoral degenerate is pictured by the fertility worshipers in the Old Testament. These are the ones that were involved in going down to the temple of Baal and uh, and, and Canaan, and they were getting involved with the ritual prostitutes in the temples or up in Greece in the ritual temple's there. What are they worshiping? They're worshiping fertility. It's an agricultural society. They're worshiping fertility, productivity, prosperity. We have the same thing today. It may not be as sexual, but it's prosperity theology. It's the health and wealth gospel. That's just the modern version of the old uh, fertility worship. Go down to Lakewood. You'll find all kinds of fertility worshipers down there. That's what it is. It's the health and wealth gospel. They're, Im, they're immoral degenerates. Oh, but they're such good people. Well, see, they combine it with moral degeneracy like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were... Jesus said, you're just a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. You have just whitewashed the outside so you look good, but what's on the inside? Dead men's bones. It's just rotten. You've got all kinds of maggots crawling around inside of you. But on the outside, you look real good. But on the inside, your souls are just a mess. So a backsliding believer can imitate this because he can pick up, as he deteriorates, he picks up the paganism of the culture around him. And paganism always tends to go, just like the sin nature, to either one of these two trends. So the result that the writer of Hebrews says is that I can't talk about what I want to talk about right now because you've been become lazy and hard of hearing spiritually and this is the dynamic that's produced this and he's going to go on to say in verses 12 to 14 by this time you ought to be teachers and be able to teach others but you reverse course now and you need milk and you can't have solid food anymore and then he's going to compare that to being a babe and he uses that word napios Now, if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses napios for babe there. And most people want to take that as an infant Christian. But in both passages, in both passages you're dealing with a group of believers that should have been more mature but have reversed course due to carnality. And instead of portraying their adolescent status as a believer, they're acting like a baby. And that Greek word napios was often used as an insult, as a pejorative, uh, as a form of ridicule for somebody who really is or had been more mature, and they're just acting like a baby. And so it's not talking about being a baby in terms of spiritual infancy. It's talking about somebody who should have been older and was older, was more mature, but they're acting like a baby. Why? Because they've been walking according to the sin nature, and they've reversed course in their spiritual life. So here we have our description of what happens when you become a sluggish backslider and you fall apart in your priorities and your value system, and the Word of God is no longer the centerpiece of your life. And it will always, it may take 10, 20, 30 years before it's exposed, but it always gets exposed and it always destroys your life. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us, for your Word that informs us, sheds light in our soul. It is in your light that we see light. And above all, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that by simply trusting in him, believing him, that he died for us, we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us with your word and that God the Holy Spirit would take the things we studied this evening and continue to remind us of them. In Jesus' name, amen.